0: Shapiro shares the steps to destroy America. Comedian Jeff Allen performs and the great Don McClain is with us. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection.
1: Thank you very much. So happy to have you with us. By the way, can I tell you a little something about our studio audience tonight? They are terrific. And as you know, we are having to uh, deal with a much, let's say, uh, diminished studio audience in terms of the numbers because of the COVID virus. But we're so glad that we can have any audience here. But these folks, about 25% of what we would normally have, but they sound like 100%. And we're so happy. Now you wonder, how did I get them to be so energetic? Let me tell you a little secret of what I did. This week, I launched and debuted a brand new book. Talked about it last week, talk about it tonight, I'll talk about it later. And it's called, The Three C's That Made America Great, Christianity, Capitalism, and the Constitution. Now, just before the show, I gave every member of the studio audience a copy of the book. So audience member, hold up your book. Hold them up. There you go. But I did tell them they can't read it during the show tonight. They have to do that later. Hey, have you ever wondered how the United States of America went from being a struggling frontier to the most powerful and prosperous nation in the history of the world? and how it happened in less than 150 years. What was the secret sauce that made it possible for millions of people to far exceed the economic capacity of their parents? How is it that many Americans, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, have become wealthy in one generation from abject poverty? Let me tell you, it was not socialism, not how it happened. And in fact, there are actually several different economic systems in play around the world and throughout history. Let let me try to describe them. For example, you've heard of communism. Uh, Best way to describe it, communism is where you have two cows. The government takes both cows and gives you a pint of milk. Socialism is where you have two cows and the government takes one of the cows and gives it to your neighbor. Fascism is where you have two cows. The government takes both cows and sells you the milk. Nazism, that's where you have two cows. The government takes both cows and shoots you. (laughs) And then there's bureaucracy. That's where you have two cows. The government takes both cows, shoots one of the cows, milks the other cow, and pours the milk down the drain. And then capitalism, that's where you have two cows. You sell one and buy a bull. That's capitalism. And that's the economic system on which this country was built. Now, in my new book, Three Cs That Made America Great, written with co-author Steve Fiesel, we explain those three Cs, Christianity, capitalism, and the Constitution. Last week, I explained how Christianity was at the core of America's beginnings. Tonight, I wanna tell you that without capitalism, America would never have evolved into a land of dreams. I'm personally an example of how our economic system creates opportunity and prosperity. I'm the first male in my entire family lineage to ever graduate from high school, much less go to college. Look, my dad lived better than his dad who lived better than his, but none of them got much above poverty and they worked really hard just to put food on the table and my dad just enough to pay rent on the little rent house that I grew up in. My dad never expected to even meet a governor or a candidate for president, much less for his son to become both. Heck, my dad would have thought it was a big deal just to have a son who was on TV. (laughs) Well, capitalism is based on the notion that if people can own land and choose their own means of a livelihood, there's no limit to what they can achieve. In the ancient feudal system of Europe, Common folks couldn't own land. In fact, they were pretty much enslaved to farm the land for the owner who had some connections to the crown. A person pretty much was attached to another man's land and had very little say about anything. And one of the reasons for the formation of the United States was to make ownership of land possible for anyone. And with it, an ownership of one's own labor. Supply and demand would determine how much a person's work was worth to others. So find a job that had value to others and there was no limit to what was possible. But great rewards certainly come with great risk. And even in America, there is no guarantee that one will become wealthy. But think about this. Poverty in the United States today still likely means that a person has a smartphone, indoor plumbing, electricity, and even a car and still be in poverty. Capitalism doesn't assure you of wealth, but it assures you of the chance to work hard at what you choose, and then to keep the fruits of your labor. The government of our country cannot force you to take on a job you don't want to do. In our book, we give a detailed explanation of what capitalism really is and how, without it, America would be just another third world country of poverty, disease, and hopelessness. I'm well aware that under any other system, I'd probably still be living in a little rent house in Hope, Arkansas, doing something I didn't really enjoy like catching chickens, which I hated as a kid. I might just be stuck where I started. So before we let the left, especially the far left, drive this country into the ditch of socialism, we need to be clear what that means. So I hope you'll do what our audience is gonna do, read our book. I'm not gonna give everybody one who's watching, I'm just giving the audience one here tonight, why you should come to the show, right? But realize that America was not made great by politicians. Never was. It was made great by Christianity, capitalism, and the Constitution. The three C's that
0: made America great, Christianity, Capitalism and the Constitution is available everywhere books are sold. Be sure to get your copy and share one with a friend who needs a refresher on how great this country really is. Now here's Mike with our first guest.
1: Back in 2006, a man from one of my favorite towns, Bakersfield, California. Well, he was first elected to Congress. And like me, he's the son of a firefighter. He even sold his own business so he could attend college and improve his life. I'd say he succeeded at that because today he works in Washington to preserve the American dream for hardworking Americans. Please welcome the House Minority Leader, Congressman Kevin McCarthy. Congressman, it's a delight to have you here. Uh, I so appreciate your coming and I want to begin with this uh, ridiculous story that has been circulating as a result of uh, an article in the Atlantic with not one single name source that the president supposedly spoke with great disparaging words about our military. Congressman, no Republican member of Congress, House, or Senate has been in the presence of this president more than you. Uh, how do you react to that kind of stuff? Well, it's
2: offensive to me that they can lie like this. You know, I spend a lot of time with this president. I, I, I was over in um, Normandy for the 75th anniversary. I've never seen someone give such great respect to the individuals that fought for us, but lost their life for us as well. And to be able to write such lies and what's, how do you know that it's a lie? They had a commercial ready to go on Morning Joe this morning. How could that even be possible? And we're gonna continue to see and hear this as we get closer to this campaign. And I wanna tell you a personal story. I was flying with this president and we were gonna go up and we are doing a rally. I was on the plane and he comes back, he goes, we're cutting the rally short and I'm going back to Dover not for press or anybody else. We go in there because two Americans lost their lives. And I've watched this president with that family to sit there to console them. Uh, It's kind of the hardest thing he has to do as the leader of the free world. And I watched him stand out on that runway in pouring rain, no umbrella, just to honor their lives throughout. And he changed everything for it and he does it each and every time.
1: Congressman, one of your uh colleagues in Congress from California, uh, the unfortunate Speaker of the House, a job that I hope you will have after uh, November, kind of got caught a little bit short this week walking around a salon that was supposed to be closed, getting her hair washed, not wearing a mask, and then blames the salon owner for what happened. It's just appalling to think of that, that she's above the law. Her staff
2: called and set up a private appointment to get her hair done against the rules. And I think she knows the rules pretty well because isn't her nephew the governor? She's pretty close to the governor. I think she understands what they are. And who really knows the rules are these small businesses that are being put out of business and now she wants to sue them. It's just appalling.
1: You know, you mentioned uh, her nephew, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom. Uh, He has been ruthlessly hard on uh, churches. Uh, riots seem to be okay, protests, that's fine. But if you're going to have a church service, then he's going to go in and take a lease away from a parking lot. He has uh, threatened arrest with uh, pastors. What on earth has happened to your state?
2: I, I don't know. And I will tell you, in my household, I've never been so upset. My wife has never been so upset. I literally text the governor when he came out with his response for whether you can at- attend church. First of all, he opened up restaurants, and I text him, and he, he had his chief of staff call me. And I asked him this question, hmm. okay, how did you determine how many people could be inside the restaurant when you opened them up? They said, oh, by square footage. Well, I happened to go to a church, um, and we, we're a rather large church, right? We have a big building, and many buildings. And I asked, well, in the church, you're limiting us to a hundred people. How do you determine that? Well, we think that's enough. Well, not by square footage. And I said, last I checked, in the Constitution, it talks about religious freedom. It doesn't talk much about a restaurant. So how do you come to this conclusion? They, they listened to me patiently, but they made no changes.
1: Uh, so let's talk about uh, the election. Eight weeks away, uh, some of the polls haven't been all that favorable to the president, but it does seem that... People are beginning to look at what's happening in major American cities, the riots, the looting, uh, setting fires to federal and state buildings. Do you feel that there is uh, a shift going on and that there are people who are recognizing that if Joe Biden and the Democrats get in power and get more power, that it means more of the mob rule?
2: Well, not only do I feel it, I see it, Um, I'm on the ground. I've been traveling this week. Um, There is real hope. I'm watching the enthusiasm continue to grow. And I think it really started going after you had four days of the Democratic Convention and four days of the Republican Convention. You had a real good contrast there. I mean, I watched the Democratic Convention. I want to know what they're thinking. Um, I do know they they hate this president. I do know they want to defund the police. And I do know they want to raise our taxes. When I looked at the Republican convention, I looked at diversity, I looked at opportunity, I looked at hope of the future, that they wanted to renew our way of life. They wanted to rebuild this economy bigger than ever before. And just that contrast itself, I saw excitement.
1: You know, I hope uh, come January I have the opportunity to call you speaker, Kevin McCarthy. I really do. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Delight to have you. Please tell the people of your hometown, Bakersfield, that uh, they've got a real fan in me. I love your city and uh, great people, great people there. So uh, take good care of them, Congressman.
2: Well, thank you, Governor. I'll tell you, Bakersfield loves you. And we're a little Nashville West. You know, we're home, former home of Buck Owens and Merle Haggard. (laughs) You could come play with your band anytime and I'll be on the front row singing with you.
1: I'll be there. Thank you. Leader Kevin McCarthy, you can keep up with him on social media at GOP Leader. Also visit RepublicanLeader.gov. Now, if you want more of my take on the news this week, join me on Huckabee.tv for facts of the matter. I'll be explaining why Joe Biden has begun to impersonate Donald Trump on the campaign trail and why Governor Andrew Cuomo is out and about without his mask and why the mayor of Washington, D.C. is requesting the Jefferson Memorial be Removed. We'll see you on Huckabee.tv after the show. Okay, Keith, you and I know what a great show we have coming up, but why don't we let our audience in on it as well?
0: Tonight, comedian Jeff Allen, author Ben Shapiro, and then our Huck's hero and music legend Don McLean, all on Huckabee. Cuckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter and follow
1: Mycuckabee on Twitter. Well, Jeff Allen is one of the hottest stand-up comics in the business. He's got a brand new one-man show called "The America I Grew Up In." Jeff and his wife Tammy were in Israel with me. I tell you, the guy kept me laughing the whole time. Well, not at the serious stuff, but all the other times. I want you to welcome back to our show one of our very favorites, the hilarious Jeff Allen.
3: Oh. Thank you. I'm out of the house. I'm out. Look at me. I'm out. And I was almost late getting here. It takes forever to get this hair looking like this. That's the opener, folks. I've been cooped up for five months. That's the best I could come up with. Let me tell you a little bit about myself and then we'll move on. I'm 64 years old, which means four years ago I was 60, and my wife came to me and she said, You need to get a physical. I said, For what? I feel fine. She goes, You don't wait for stuff to break until you go, you get maintenance done. And I gotta tell you, I was 35 pounds heavier at that time. So I go and have a physical. Seven days later, they call. I'm out of town. Tammy takes the call. She calls me up, she says, the doctor's office just called with your test results. I said, what'd they say? Tammy says, I'll paraphrase. Doctor said, if you were part of a wildebeest herd, the lions would be circling you right now. (laughs) I don't even know what that means. She goes, it means you're old and you're weak and you're gonna start exercising. That's what it means. She went out and bought two Fitbits, one for me and one for her. And what I didn't know is she signed on to be my friend. Yeah, which means my wife can actually monitor my movement. And she caught me in a lie, and I admit it, I lie to my wife. Not often, but if you've been married more than a week, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) There are just conversations I don't want to have. And she she calls me up at 2 in the afternoon. I've been in a hotel room. I haven't left all day. And I knew she was going to ask, what'd you do today? And if I tell her nothing, she's going to give me this whole widow argument. Your heart's going to blow up. You're going to die. I'm going to be a widow. I don't want to hear it. So sure enough, she says, what'd you do? And I lied. I said, I went to the mall, I walked for a while, came back, had some breakfast. She goes, short walk, you've taken 91 steps all day. (laughs) I said, how do you even know that? She goes, I'm your friend. I go, you're not my friend anymore. (laughs) I did learn something that day. Four trips to a commode at a Holiday Inn Express, 91 steps. (laughs) Every day's a learning day, folks. Fitbit monitors your entire life. Fitbit will actually tell me how many times I get up in the middle of the night and use the restroom. And then Tammy will send me a text message. You were up five times. Why are you so restless? Well, Brad and Angelina split up. Who can sleep anymore, babe? And if that isn't bad, I'm watching Golf Channel, 10 in the morning, 2 in the afternoon. The, the, uh, she sends me a text message. Are you dead? You've taken 78 steps all day. I didn't have the heart to tell her most of that because my foot fell asleep and I was banging it on the floor. Leave me alone, woman. She says, you need to find something to do, exercise, waggle, like, what do you have in mind? She says, I've always wanted to ski. That's what my wife said to me. I've always wanted to learn how to ski. We've been married 34 years. That's the first mention of the skiing fetish I've heard come out of her mouth. We've watched seven Winter Olympics together as man and wife. She never once leaned over while Lindsey Vonn was zipping down the slopes and said, boy, I'd love to learn how to do that. So I figured it out pretty quick. I said, look, Tam, I'm not taking up the sport to kill Sonny Bono at my age. You want the insurance money, you can poison me like otherwise, I'll get a meal out of it. I tried skiing when I was in my 20s and I was coordinated. I got knocked unconscious by the chairlift. What more sign from God do you need? And if that wasn't humiliating enough, the insurance company refused to cover my head injury. Guy called me up at home and said, let me understand this. You got hit in the head with a chairlift. I said, yes, sir. He goes, well, that makes you a moron. And we consider that a pre-existing condition around here. <laughs> Holy cow, they had me. And then my 60th birthday rolls around. That's a big birthday, 6-0. You know what she gets me for a gift? This is my 60th birthday gift. 12 hours with a personal trainer named Todd. <laughs> Hi, Jeff, I'm 2% body fat Todd. Well, hey, 2%. I'm 80% flabby Jeff. How you doing? First question he asked me, how long has it been since I had an exercise program? Well, let me ponder that one, Todd. It's gonna take a while to do the math here. I'm 60. Well, 60 years, nine months. Didn't take that long at all. To be honest with you, Todd, I haven't moved with any purpose since I won the race at conception. Yeah. Thank you. I think I all ran 3 billion that morning, Todd. I'm still exhausted. We'd all exercise if we, if the weight we gained was in a different place on our bodies. Where do we gain weight? Our stomachs and our behinds. It's not in our way. A couple pounds on your forehead would get you to a gym. And I can't see nothing. Hey, you want a donut? No, I'm running out of hats. <laughs> and Tammy's dieting now. Dieting. She's on keto. We've tried paleo. We've tried Atkins. Now it's keto. Once get into ketosis, I don't care. I have cookies in my office in the basement. I was handing out cookies to my grandchildren one day. One of you will betray me. Three times before that rooster crows on Sesame Street. And my grandson, is it me, Papa? It is you. Look at the crumbs on your lips. Did you get any of that in your mouth? (laughs) So I'm unpacking the groceries for the big keto buy, and I come across rice cakes. Now, I've never had a rice cake, never eaten a rice cake, don't know what they are, and all I see is the word cake on the package. So I call her out on it. I go, baby, I thought cake was a no-no with the keto. She says, no, that's for our cheat day. What? Apparently, you get a cheat day. You can eat whatever garbage you want one day a week. So a couple days went by, I was ready for my cheat day. I remember we have cake. So I run to the pantry, I pull out the rice cakes, I rip one open, I'm feeling it. Yeah, it kind of feels like a brake pad, you know. <laughs> but it's cake, how bad can it be? Oh Lord, I took a bite, it never made it to my throat. <laughs> I said, baby, these are stale. She says, no, that's the way they are. I said, then this isn't cake, it's caulk. It's not food. This is insulation, these people should be sued. I gave the rest of them to our three dogs. You eat them. The dog scarfed them up and went in my front yard and passed the thermos. <laughs> you guys have been great. Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you. So you're back to finally doing shows again, huh? I am. I've been on the road uh, doing clubs, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting... <laughs> It, I got to tell you something, though, before, yeah. uh, uh, because I, I was on this whole diet thing. And, yeah. Uh, kale. Have you had kale? I mean, you, you uh, not on purpose, but I have
1: had some of it
3: before. Yeah. <laughs> you can't put enough ranch dressing on kale to make <laughs> it taste good. And uh, it's, it's like quidzo in my house now. It's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. And she, <laughs> kale chips. Are you familiar with kale I, I, I've seen them, but I refuse to eat okay. those things. It's kale leaves. I look leaves?
1: like a guy that eats kale.
3: Come no. on. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kale leaves on a cookie sheet put in the oven on singe. So Tammy, Tammy pulls out these smoldering heap of weeds and then she throws them on my plate and I said, what is this? She said, it's kale. Ch-. I said, it's a brush fire. Are you kidding me? And I tried to give them to my dog. My dog refused. And the dog eats the cat litter. So I, 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 I'm just saying it's all you need to know about kale. I'm done.
1: I'm done. So, uh, but you do have like a new uh, com- comedy coming out on Dry Bar Comedy. Online. I did.
3: My second special uh, is out now and it's called Honor Thy Wife. Um, And basically, Mm. that's it. She says, uh, you get diagnosed, you honor her, and you get diagnosed. (laughs) She got all over me about the ADD. She says, I know you got it, and it's driving me insane. And I said, so why are you bothered by it now? She goes, what do you mean now? I go, look, if I've had ADD, I've had yeah. it for 64 years. Yeah. It's not, you right. can't catch it on a toilet seat. It's not a virus. <laughs> so it's, it's not like you go to the mall and two weeks later, I'm so distracted. I can't hold a thought. <laughs> Tammy, I, I think I caught the ADD. I knew I should have wore a mask. I knew it.
1: Anyway. Uh, Jeff, we're, we're always thrilled to have you here. My best to Tammy. We love you. By the way, Keith Bilbrey, he is still laughing over there, but maybe, maybe we can get him to calm down long enough to tell us how to preview Jeff Allen's hilarious new comedy special, The America I Grew Up In. (laughs) Keith?
0: I'll give it a try. Just go to jeffallencomedy.com and you'll find the video right on his home page. You'll also find lots more comedy, and you can contact him to headline your company or church event. It's all at jeffallencomedy.com. If you're in the mood for more laughs, head to Huckabee.tv for In Case You Missed It. We've got news on Dunkin' Donuts' new caffeinated breakfast cereals, a band with the world's tallest mohawk, and a video game that replicates the joys of Flying Coach. It's all on Huckabee.tv after the show. Political commentator Ben Shapiro is next, then Huck's hero Gary LeBlanc, and later singer-songwriter Don
1: McLean. Stay with Huckabee. Right now, Samaritan's Purse is responding to the great need in Southwest Louisiana locations, and they need your help to continue. They've got a disaster relief unit that's out there helping homeless families. In fact, my wife, Janet, is on her way to her birthplace, Lake Charles, Louisiana, to assist as a Samaritan's Purse team leader. Now she would have gone anyway, but this time for her, it's personal since some of her own family is there and had their homes severely damaged. Your call and financial gift to help those hurting Americans with emergency supplies, clean water, temporary shelter, and the massive job of repairing damaged roofs and waterlogged homes are being done all in the name of Jesus. Please consider what you can give to help out those folks. And then call our Visit the Samaritan's Purse website. And thank you. Well, my next guest is a Harvard graduate, but please don't hold that against him. He hosts the top conservative podcast in America. He's also a best-selling author, and his new book breaks down the radical leftist agenda to destroy a country that we spent 250 years building. Here's my conversation with Ben Shapiro. Ben, you, uh, you talk about the three steps that, America is being destroyed in or by. Let's talk about those three steps. What are they, and and how is that destroying America?
4: So in order to understand what exactly is being destroyed, we have to understand what is supposed to unite us, what originally brought America together. And that was three things, a shared philosophy, a shared culture, and a shared history. The philosophy of the United States was embodied in the Declaration of Independence, the idea that all men are created equal, endowed by that creator with certain inalienable rights, and the government was instituted in order to protect those rights, a limited government with limited powers designed not to invade those rights. That was the shared creedal philosophy of the United States. We were all supposed to hold that in common. That doesn't mean that it was perfectly applied. Obviously, it was not. But the history of the United States, the other shared feature of the United States, is a history in which we try to strive for the fulfillment of those founding principles, and we do better at that over time, increasingly spreading the application of those principles to more and more people, not just at home, but also abroad, and that is the glory of the United States. And then we have a shared culture, a culture that values social institutions like the family, that values church, that values the spirit of entrepreneurialism and adventure. And all three of those elements of America that used to unify us, the philosophy, the history, and the culture, all three of those are being destroyed right now, actively undermined by a group of people I've called disintegrationists. The disintegrationist philosophy believes that America... Is not in fact free, that America is merely racist and evil, and that all of the founding ideals are actually backward, that all men should not be equal before the law, that we have to determine via group identity whether people are treated in a particular way or not, that the government should not be limited in any way, that rights don't spring from God and don't pre-exist government. The same group of people believe that American history is the unending story of evil and oppression, the sort of the 1619 project view of America, now being taught in your public schools. And then finally, they believe that the culture of America is wrong. The churches and families are obstacles to ultimate change in the United States and can be dispensed with safely. Government should override them, in fact. And that a culture of adventure and entrepreneurialism, a culture that says that you're owed nothing except the adventure itself, that is a bad culture and needs to be overthrown by a culture of entitlement. If if these people were
1: able to take power, getting elected, whether it's uh, to the highest offices or just take over cities and counties, what happens to America? What happens to the life that we're kind of used to living. A life of going to school, going to church, going shopping, uh, owning our homes, taking care of our lawns. I mean, that's a life that many Americans kind of strive for. What happens to that, Ben, if these people
4: really do get power? It falls apart. I mean, no aspect of your life will be left untouched. And you're seeing this right now. Every area of culture has been made political. Where you shop has been made political. Every element of the entertainment you consume has been made political. Your kid's educational system has been made political. Your church has been made political. And the power of government has been used to impose from above a lot of these policies. And the power of culture has been used from below in order to effectuate change inside your own community. Uh, this sort of stuff is deeply dangerous. You know, there used to be this sort of tolerance for dissent in the United States that even the left used to pay lip service to. And that's completely gone. When you talk about the people taking over government and doing damage, I mean, the, the Democrats have already pledged at this point to do away with the Senate filibuster, and then presumably just add states willy-nilly to the United States Senate, forever shifting the balance of power in the United States toward Democrats, and then using 51 votes to ram through whatever radical agenda they want top-down, overriding Americans' rights, overriding federalism. What you're gonna see as a result is communities drawing further apart, not coming together.
1: I mean, many people argue that Joe Biden has not thoroughly embraced such a radical doctrine but it does appear that we're headed toward an election in which there is a huge crossroads for the future. Why would the election of Joe Biden push this agenda along,
4: or would it? It would. I mean, Joe Biden is merely a stand-in for the radical left. Everybody acknowledges that at this point. His selection of Kamala Harris underscores that. I mean, the reality is that unfortunately, uh, Joe Biden is unlikely to serve two terms, which means that Kamala Harris, if he were either elected or re-elected, would likely become president of the United States. This is a person who has paid lip service to the 1619 Project. This is a person who personally has approved bailing out rioters and looters in places like Minneapolis. By the way, Joe Biden himself has embraced a lot of this language, talking about how systemic racism is the story of the United States. Now, Biden does pay lip service to a lot of the founding principles, but he doesn't actually adhere to any of those because he believes that the United States requires fundamental change. In the same way that Barack Obama used to play this game, he did actually during the DNC, saying he stood up for the Constitution. But the only thing that the Constitution and the Declaration stand for is the ability of the mob with 51 votes to basically do whatever they want to override individual rights. Ben, there's a big
1: difference between the slogan, Black Lives Matter, which I think it's something everybody can agree with, but that's not the same as the organization, Black Lives Matter. And and I think a lot of big multinational corporations who give
4: millions of dollars to the organization, do they have any clue what they're giving to? So I I doubt that they do. I think that most of them are simply trying to buy their way out of bad press coverage. I think that a lot of these corporations that are paying as grifters like Robin DiAngelo or Ibram Kendi to do anti-racism training are basically just trying to buy their way out of legal liability. If they get sued, they can always say, "Well, we undertook these diversity initiatives, so clearly there's no corporate responsibility for whatever happened at our company." And they also understand that the left is the squeaky, squeakiest wheel, so they get the grease. the The phrase "Black Lives Matter" suffers from semantic overload. It means one of three things: one, the inarguable proposition that Black Lives Matter, everyone agrees, so it's not controversial. Two the actual organization, which is a Marxist radical organization, and three, the proposition that America is systemically racist and evil and that systems of American racism have to be overthrown or you are complicit in racism. And what the left has done is they've played this Mott and Bailey game where if you attack either of the latter two definitions, which are the more commonly used definitions of Black Lives Matter, then they say, well, then you must not agree that black people matter. It's like, no, you, what, what you're doing is you're playing a game. You're being deliberately vague and refusing to actually define your terms so we can have a clear conversation specifically so you can claim that I believe something I don't and you can be, and you can claim that you believe something that you don't.
1: Hmm. Ben, great to have you here. The book is How to Destroy America in
4: Three Easy
1: Steps. It is a bestseller already for obvious reasons. Ben, thanks for joining us. Happy to have you with us. Thanks so much. Be sure to get Ben Shapiro's latest book, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. It's available anywhere books are sold. By the way, you can keep up with Ben on social media at Ben Shapiro. Keith Bilbrey is going to keep this show from disintegrating. He's going to do that by telling you what else we have coming up tonight. Keith? Well,
0: next, Huck's hero Gary LeBlanc and legendary music icon Don McLean. More Huckabee is coming up. Next week, Jim Caviezel and Sarah Huckabee Sanders joins us.
1: The organization Mercy Chefs aid survivors of natural disasters all across the country by cooking fresh meals on site. They were right here in Nashville this year when it was hit by a devastating tornado. Their valiant culinary efforts make them our Huck's hero tonight.
4: Mercy Chefs is a non-profit, donation-driven disaster relief and community outreach
0: team
5: of chefs. With the tornado that has hit Nashville and the surrounding areas, me and my family, we've been praying, we've been upset, and it's like there's so much sadness, and what can we do? And so, here we are, Mercy Chefs. If I'm not on scene with 24 to 36 hours, I think I've missed the mission. We think it's really important for us to be an immediate responder. Victims, volunteers, and first responders are a priority for Mercy Chefs.
0: We all, I guess, have a tendency to believe everything is going to be taken care of. But then when you come to something like this and you realize thousands of plates are going out, and it's all, you know, from volunteers, I mean, that's really eye-opening
4: if you walk in and you see this organization that are you know really hand crafting something you can't help but be enamored with the idea of that
5: the name really does say what it's all about we're professional chefs that go to share the the mercy of jesus christ we don't go to proselytize. We go to be of service. Our business is to be there and to take care of them in their time of need. And that's what we're dedicated to.
1: With me tonight is the founder of Mercy Chefs, Gary LeBlanc. Gary, great having you here.
5: Well, so Thank so good you. to be here.
1: Well, you have just come up from Louisiana that was just devastated by uh, Hurricane Laura. What's the situation like in that area?
5: I I think Hurricane Laura is gonna go down as one of the most underrated storms that's ever hit the country. Mm. Um, Lake Charles, surrounding areas are, it's just a complete wipeout. Trees are still down, power lines are down. They're saying another two to weeks to two months before power is back. There's no water. And with the COVID situation, there's no place to go. So folks are stuck in homes in the dark with no water, trying to find a way to make it. I am
1: so impressed with Mercy Chefs. When uh, Hurricane Michael hit the Gulf Coast near where I live, mm-hmm. uh, my wife was one of the volunteers that was over there and saw Mercy Chef. She came back and told me about it. She said, it's amazing. These people are not just throwing water in soup. They're fixing really great meals yeah. for the volunteers and for the victims. And... Uh, it was so impressive. How did you ever come up with the idea of, of doing something that is not just mm-hmm. feeding them a cold sandwich and, uh, you know, throw them in a uh, paper cup of soup, but a
5: really nice chef-prepared meal? Well, it was Katrina. New Orleans was my hometown. Yeah. And I was living in Virginia, but I went down and volunteered with a lot of other organizations, doing the only thing I knew to do, and that was to cook. Mm. And I got home after Katrina, and I got angry. I just didn't think the way they fed people was the the right way um, to feed somebody that had just lost everything, or what the Lord would have us do. He would Mm. have us do anything in excellence. And so that was really the birth of mercy chefs, that people deserved a high quality handcrafted meal prepared with love in the most difficult of circumstances. How do you get funding for this massive operation? And we have people that just hear about us and believe in what we do. We're, we're completely donor funded. We don't take any state or federal money. Uh, we don't have a parent organization or a large denomination. And so we exist and we've grown just on the generosity of individuals around the country.
1: Well, it's been an amazing thing. Uh, in addition to disaster relief, do you have other initiatives that you, that you do as Mercy Chefs? Right.
5: Well, community kitchens, we think between disasters and year-round now, we have an obligation to feed people in our own backyard. I mean, one out of seven children go to bed hungry at night. Mm. And I I can't run around the world feeding people everywhere else and ignore my own backyard. So we have a community kitchen in Portsmouth, and we work with other agencies, and we feed children and elderly and at-risk people every day. We also have a community kitchen in Panama City, We just couldn't leave. And we're looking at two other serious locations right now for community kitchens.
1: Gary, I want to tell you, there's a reason that you're our Hux Hero tonight. We love what you and Mercy Chefs do. What a phenomenal concept and vision. I believe it is a God-given vision that he gave to you and that he is blessing and helping people. I want our audience to join me in giving Gary LeBlanc and Mercy Chefs a great Mm -hmm. big hand of appreciation. Mm -hmm. Wonderful work. And Keith Gilbrey will tell us how we can keep up to date and more importantly, how to partner with Mercy Chefs.
0: Well, to support Mercy Chefs in their disaster relief efforts or to help out as a volunteer, just visit mercychefs.com. Still to come, legendary music star Don McLean. More Huckabee is on.
1: And welcome back Don McLean is a living music legend As a singer and songwriter We all know that he is best known For the 1971 hit song American Pie That rock and roll masterpiece Is an American cultural touchstone Madonna Don has been inducted Into the Songwriters Hall of Fame With his music composition That have been covered Now get this By Elvis Presley Perry Como And Madonna Now folks If that doesn't cover the spectrum I don't know what does Anyway, Don's And I Love You So was even chosen for Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's Wedding Day Love Song. I am so proud to welcome Don McLean. Don, thank you for coming.
0: You're uh,
6: you're giving me an an out-of-body experience. I I can't (laughs) believe you're talking about me, but. uh... Well, no,
1: it's it's such a thrill. (laughs) Thank you. For me to have you here. What were the influences that got you first focused on music?
6: Well, I have, um, three kinds of music that I, that I understand. Um, old-fashioned popular songs, um, er early rock and roll, like from the 1950s through the 60s, and then near the middle 60s, I kind of lose it, and, um...
1: (laughs) A lot of people lost it in the middle of the 60s.
6: (laughs) Folk music is another, <laughs> another big influence. So I know folk music well and, so, and, and those kinds of things. But I like the simple rock and roll, you know, Buddy Holly and Gene Vincent mm. and uh, the, the Beatles came along and um, uh, they did so many different things in yeah. so many. They, did, they weren't like a single sound. And that really impressed me. I love the diversity. They would try a whole new melody and a whole new way of writing a song. So I would do that, My, like Wonderful Baby is not like Castles in the Air, which is not yeah. like End I Love You So, which is not like American Pie. They're all different. And um, so that was what I tried to do. And that's what got me, those influenced me.
1: One of the big honors that you've had was uh, getting a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Do you take that stuff? I mean, Songwriters Hall of Fame, Hollywood star, does it just sort of go in and out? Or is it like, wow, I got to cherish and savor this moment? Most of the time, I can't believe it's happening. Hmm. You know, they had
6: me to the White House in 2000, and I sang American Pie at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial to about 600,000 people before the uh, year 2000 happened. And, you know, that was a a big moment. And then when the year 2000 came, they had the Washington Monument lit all the way up, and it said, 2000 at the
1: top. (laughs) I want to talk about uh, a song that we're going to ask you to sing here in a little bit. uh, Sure. Uh, Vincent are, as many people call it, Starry, Starry Night. Mm-hmm. But the song is about Vincent Van Gogh.
6: Yeah. Well, I never, you know, I, I read this book by his brother, Theo, and, um, you know, I wanted to do something about an artist. Uh-huh. And I never really heard a, a folk song, a pop song, or an old rock and roll song that was ever about um, a painter. Well,
1: mm-hmm.
6: I did was I just looked at the Starry Night painting, and the painting sort of told me what to do. Because the painting has circularity. And a lot of times people who are a little bit crazy, which uh, you can be very creative <laughs> if you're just a little crazy. If you're too crazy, you know, you, you come apart. But there's a circularity, you know, like yeah. that, you know. Yeah, just sang it into a tape recorder. That's how I write. I just sing stuff comes out of me and I start to sing it, make and, it up. You know? And the next thing you've got a hit song. But the thing is, it's it's got to say back to you what you feel inside. Yeah. That's the thing about a song, and songwriting, that a lot of people might not know. If you have a feeling, and there's all sorts of colors in us and feelings, if you want to capture that, and you're working on that song, you hear that thing back, it's got to give you that feeling every yeah. time. Yeah. That's a hard thing to do. I mean, that's how I work.
1: Well, I want to tell you, we uh, we're going to have you sing for us because we're not going to bring you all the way here and then not do that, and uh, then I've got to get a promise out of you that you will come back and be with us to celebrate the 50th anniversary of American Pie, but we want to wait until 2021 so we can get it in that time. Well, so, I will do that, and thank you for inviting me. Well, and we'll talk about that song then, which I'm excited about. In a moment, Don McLean is gonna perform, but first, Keith Bilbury will tell you how you can get more of the music of Don McLean, and I know you will want to.
0: Well, for all things Don McLean, including his October release of Still Playing Favorites, please visit DonMcLean.com and you can listen to all of Don McLean's music on Spotify. Coming up, Don McLean performs his classic hit, Vincent, on tonight's Huckabee.
1: Now here to perform is Don McLean.
6: Starry, starry night Paint your palette blue and gray Look out on a summer's day With eyes that know the darkness in my soul Shadows on the hills suffered for your sanity I tried to set them free they would not listen they did not know how perhaps they'll listen now starry starry night Flaming flowers that brightly blaze. Swirling clouds in violet haze. Reflect in Vincent's eyes of China blue. Colors changing hue. Morning fields of amber grain. you tried to set them free, they would not listen, they did not know how, perhaps they'll listen now, for they could not love you, still your love was true. Ragged men in ragged clothes A silver thorn, a bloody rose lie crushed and broken on the virgin snow Now I think I know What you tried to say to me